Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Eileen Devine on the intersection of attachment and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here today for another episode. So my guest today is Eileen Devine, and let me tell you a bit about her. Um, She is an LCSW. She has over a dozen years of clinical experience and is the adoptive mother of a child with fetal alcohol syndrome, which is what we're going to focus on today, looking at the overlay of attachment and fetal alcohol syndrome. She believes that kids do well if they can, and that the way we understand uh, a child is understanding how their brain works, and also the meaning behind challenging behaviors. Her goals are not only to support parents in feeling more competent and confident in connecting with their child by parenting from a brain-based perspective, but also to recognize their experience as the parent of a child with challenging behavioral symptoms and the impact that this has on their sense of self and well-being. Eileen is also an instructor in the Postmaster's Certificate Program for Adoption and Foster Therapy through Portland State University's Child Welfare Partnership, training other therapists on the neurobehavioral model. So Eileen is coming to us with both professional and personal experience. And one of the reasons that this really caught my attention to have her as a guest on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast is many times people mistake uh, alcohol-related neurological disorders, fetal alcohol syndrome, drug exposure in utero. Many people mistake the impacts of these things and the resulting behaviors to be attachment problems. Um, And they're a completely different thing and the approach to them needs to be very different. Uh, So that is why we really wanted to have her here as a guest today. So she will be joining us in just a second. Well, hi, Eileen. Thanks for being back to continue our conversation about this really, really important topic of um, fetal alcohol syndrome and um, exposure to drugs and alcohol in utero. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, really happy to be here to continue. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking and, you know, a lot of Uh, our audience, our clinicians and therapists. And um, one of the things I was thinking is that, you know, what should they know? Like, should they be doing some kind of checklist um, or something like that? Or, you know, what, I I will tell you, I know some pretty sophisticated therapists and even, even parent, adoptive parents who are therapists who are coming to me and telling me their child's in their teens and oh my gosh, I finally figured this out and this makes so much sense. And these are people that read a lot, you know, have really taken their children to, you know, like I said, high level clinics for evaluations. And it's just, 
this missing piece of the puzzle that yeah. they, they may have even heard about it, maybe like briefly at a conference, but it, it still didn't cross their mind that this is, this, yes. wait a minute, we might be talking about my kid here. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, to me that just, and I have that same experience, it just tells me how deeply entrenched we are in this behavioral lens, right? And not seeing these behaviors from this, it's about skill and not will. Um, and oftentimes what I have seen as well is that a parent may at a young, when their child's a younger age, may be like, eh, you know, things aren't quite typical, but they're still okay. They're still kind of on par with their peers and I can manage this. And as the child gets older and the expectations for their chronological age rise exponentially, which happens, you think about school settings, home, mm -hmm. everything, and the child their child, because they have these lagging cognitive skills, cannot keep up, right? And so then the parent starts to see that, or a younger sibling starts to catch up with their older sibling who has the lagging skills, and they are like, oh my goodness, like this younger sibling is now doing better in these areas than my older child. What is that about? And that sometimes is this new, um, I wouldn't say wake-up call, but just this new understanding of like, wow, this is actually more serious than I thought. And it leads them down this path sometimes of mm -hmm. these cognitive skills and neurobehavioral model, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that it's, it's very, very typical, I think, experience. And I would say if you have, if you're a clinician out there and you have parents who come to you and their kids are say high school age, and they're just coming to this realization, or you're, you're, um, you're thinking about this and wanting to help them kind of have this new understanding, or if you're a parent in that, they're, they're, the hope is not lost. <laughs> the hope is not lost. There is so much that can still be done to accommodate your child and help them be more successful in those areas where maybe they've failed repeatedly and of course have had this incredible frustration or anger or whatever it might be as a result of those repeated failures. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's really helpful. And, you know, I'm thinking about that word hope and I want to share something else. Um, I've had situations like at Chaddock, uh, we have this in-home intensive program where we go like sort of like nanny 911, but for attachment mm -hmm. and trauma and adoption and stuff. So we, mm -hmm. we fly and we work with the family for like four days using all the tools that we're trained in and things like that. Okay. So I have gone on intensives before and within a day or two, I'm like, the main thing going on here is not attachment and trauma. Like I can yeah. tell in my gut that this is not what this is. And yes. um, I'll start to try to bring up the idea of an assessment for some kind of neurological um, difficulties that I'm suspecting mm -hmm. maybe in utero exposure to drugs or alcohol mm -hmm. and they don't want to hear it. They yeah. really, res they, they just, because I think what they hear is, wait, you're like the attachment trauma person. And then you do these like therapies that help with that. And then they get better and then they're quote normal, whatever that is. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I go down that route, you're saying like, we can't go to therapy and fix that. Um, and right. so parents get really upset and sometimes just don't even want to work with me and want to find a rad therapist. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so, so that, that has happened. So, yeah. 
Yeah. What and do you I, say I have, to that? <laughs> I have some thoughts on why that happens. Um, you know, in my experience, what that parent is usually coming to grips with or trying to, or trying to avoid in some cases is the permanency of this disability, that it is a permanent physical disability of the brain. And so that's the question I have all the time from parents. Will they ever catch up? Will this ever go? Will they ever live in the real world, quote unquote? Um, will they be living with me their whole life? And, you know, I say, well, we're not going to underestimate your child. And also we're going to be realistic that they have a permanent physical disability of the brain, which means lagging cognitive skills. And it doesn't mean they can't grow and mature. But what it does mean is that's going to happen very, very slowly. And we don't really know what that rate looks like, right? We don't know what that looks like, say, into adulthood. And so some of the pieces that we look at with the, with the neurobehavioral model is like this idea, for example, of dismaturity, where a child with FASD is, say, um, 15 chronologically in age, but half their age developmentally. And that's not an exaggeration. I often say to parents, if you cut your child's chronological in age in half, that is a good starting point in terms of understanding where they are socially, emotionally, when you're looking at challenging behaviors, asking yourself, huh, what is what would this mean for a seven-year-old? Does it all of a sudden make more sense? And it usually does. So that that's just one tiny example of this piece of kind of lagging cognitive skills, one skill of many, that once parents see it, they can't unsee it. And I think that's important because it's so foundational to understanding their child and also, it brings a whole lot of grief. And so yes. we talk about that. And I say to the parents, it's good that you can't unsee it because this is who your child is. And in order to parent them differently, you have to understand this dismaturity and that they are a different age, developmentally and some skills, that sort of thing. And also it's okay to be really sad about what that means, right? And to be sad about the fact that they aren't, they are who they are with this permanent disability. And actually the accommodations and the changing has to come from you as the parent. Like that is the steep learning curve, right? And that's, mm -hmm. why, I, that's why I only work with parents in my practice. <laughs> they find right. out very quickly why I don't work with the child. It's like the child is who they are. This is about the parent doing a lot of changing, a lot of adjusting expectations, a lot of getting super clear on what your deeply held beliefs were about parenting and who your child would be and really redefining those in light of this new information. So I totally get why parents are resistant to that and everything that it might bring up for them. Mm -hmm. And I think um, it, when you brought about a lot of grief, it sounds like what you're saying is that you have to look at this any kind of disability that your child could have been born with that w that would have been more visible say mm -hmm. you know for some reason they're they're not going to be able to walk or mm -hmm. you know or something like this that you know the kind of grief that would surround that that a parent has to work through um, they're gonna have to work through around something like this yes absolutely and so I don't know if you're familiar with the term disenfranchised grief 
talk a lot about it a lot with my parents, just or the parents I work with, um, not recognized, not socially sanctioned, that kind of thing, a grief that is not publicly mourned. And so what that means is that it's oftentimes done in isolation and it's repeated, right? It's, it's this wave that kind of takes you over and brings you down. You get your head above water and then something you didn't even know you cared about happens. <laughs> with your child and poof, all of a sudden you're pulled back yes. under, right? Brene yes. Brown talks about that in her work um, a lot. And I think it resonates so strongly with these parents. And so to understand that that is a unique part of this parenting journey, I believe it's um, universal. I mean, we, of course, deal with grief in different ways, experience in different ways, but it's always there. And if you don't recognize that and gently start to move through it, then you're going to get stuck in this in this paradigm shift that you're trying to make into this neurobehavioral lens. You're going to get stuck, um, and so that's again just a lot of hard work there for parents. I remember when I when my daughter was very very little, probably four or five, a family member said to me, "Do you think she'll ever live on her own?" And I was shocked that she asked that. <laughs> Like, of course she will. What are you That's talking about? Like, of course she will. Like, why would you even ask such a thing? Um, and now, not too much later, right? Six, seven years later, it's like, huh, you know, she might, she might surprise us and she might do that. And that would be wonderful. And also the chances are she probably will live with us or very close by with a lot of supports. I mean, it's, but that's that process of like, I think getting um, really, really deeply into this grief process coming out, having this process of acceptance and moving through that. Right. And sometimes it's two step forward, one step back, but um, but it's, it's, it's a process. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I always even say just about myself and even in my own life, um, often you don't realize what your expectations are until they're not met. Mm-hmm. And then it's oh. like, Oh, like I, I guess I did have a pretty firm idea about how that was going to be. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, this, it, this, I'm parenting in general is a humbling experience, but parenting kids whose brains work differently, very differently and needing to reevaluate those expectations, you know, in the way that we were parented. I mean, of course it goes back generations, right? Um, it's, it's hard work. Yeah. But it's, like I said, I, I don't think that parents, get very far in this in this parenting model um, if they don't really come to terms with those pieces. And do you work with a lot of kids where parents, like they went to the one therapist who was maybe not seeing this as the diagnosis and doing ADHD, thinking ADHD, or like we mm-hmm. said earlier in the podcast, you know, it's reactive attachment disorder, mm-hmm. um, or it's, you know, oppositional defiant disorder, and yeah. then they don't improve. So then they go to another therapist who has sort of that same framework, but thinks maybe they'll sort of tweak the treatment plan and they don't improve. Mm-hmm. And then, yep. That's so sad. Yeah, and it, it, it's sad because things don't get better. And the parent is usually harshly judged because everything that they're doing is not working and they feel terrible about it themselves. And the messages that they're being given is, you must be doing something wrong. And then the child remains the child who ruins everything. 
right? They're the, they're the kid who they just tell me about that phrase. Cause you use that, <laughs> you use that in the interview and then I see you write about it. So yeah. So, yeah. You so. know, it's funny that, yeah. One of my blog posts is that you, um, you ruin everything is the title. And I actually had a parent reach out to me and say, Oh, you know, I read this and you're talking about my family and, and it resonates with me so strongly, but would you, would you consider changing the title? Cause I feel really uncomfortable passing it to my friends and family with this title. It's so harsh. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because it is what we think. It is what we think about the kids we work with who are difficult and you don't see any progress and you become frustrated and you think, Oh, it's, it's them. It's a character flaw. And it's what we think as parents about our own kids. When we get to that point of complete burnout and frustration. Um, so so I thank change, her for, so you, didn't, you didn't change the title. <laughs> you decided not to sanitize it and, 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 and make it sound, you know, a little nicer, a little better. <laughs> Cause this, thank her for her feedback, but no, I didn't change it. <laughs> well, because you know, it resonates so deeply with so many people that you're yeah. trying to reach. I'm That's sure. right. That's right. Yep. And so the other piece, when we talk about diagnosis and why that is important, um, when we have a child with FASD and they understand that they have a physical disability of the brain, then they understand that, oh, there's a reason behind why I struggle so much. Yes. And I'm not just messing everything up and failing everything and ruining everything. I actually have, you know, a verifiable problem, disability, that I need a lot more support on. So um, that's a whole nother, a whole nother piece of it. But Yeah, and I think that there could be the feeling that if I tell my child this, they're going to feel worse. Like, I don't, I don't want to frame it like this to my child, that it's a permanent disability. But you're saying that's not generally the case. It's, it's, right. it's better for children and adolescents and, you know, even adults to understand this. Yes. Yeah. So really early on in my parenting, when I was talking with my mentor, Diane Melvin, who I mentioned her book earlier, um, I was talking with her about how to talk with my son about his sister's differences because he was becoming very frustrated with her for things that were about skill and not will. And I was very hesitant to do that. And it's a long story why, but um, basically came down to not wanting to impact their relationship negatively. And Diane said, but doesn't all relationship come from understanding of the other? Mm -hmm. And I've always thought about that because I'm like, yeah, well, of course it does. And isn't that true for ourselves too? Right. Mm -hmm. And so if there is this major thing about us and our sense of self and who we are, like a physical disability that impacts everything, how can we truly be, you know, at peace with ourselves and relationship with ourselves, understand ourselves if we don't even know that, <laughs> you know? Um, so I talk with parents about in age appropriate ways, again, looking at their developmental age, not necessarily a chronicle age, how to start talking with kids about that. And, you know, going back to the idea of grief, too, I think, again, what's really unique about this experience is not only our grief that we experience as parents, but that at some point, it's very likely we will have to help our kids through their own grief experience of what this disability means for their life. And if we don't have our stuff under control, or at least, you know, under control where we are aware of what's going on, then it's going to be really help or really hard to help our kids navigate that for themselves. Mm -hmm. I remember um, we had an adolescent 
um, at Shadok many, many years ago. And, you know, the idea was that he had attachment disorder, he had reactive attachment disorder, and he had no conscience. And this, it was like old school when, you know, people really talk that way even more than they do now. Mm-hmm. And we met this young man, and, and within hours, you're like, who are they talking about? I mean, this yeah. is like, um, and ended up sending him for an evaluation um, at the Chicago Child Study Center and um, where Ira Chesnoff was, you know, very clearly mm-hmm. this is what was going on. And um, they have these comic books there that you can read with kids um, about having, you know, a fetal alcohol syndrome and things like mm-hmm. this. And I remember going through the comic book with him. I'll never forget it. It was, it had such a profound impact on me. And it was this picture of this little girl and she, somebody was saying, don't run into the street in the comic book. And she was running into the street. And then there was this little bubble over her head that said, I heard them, but my legs won't do what I want my brain to do. Yep. And I remember him looking at that and just this look coming over his face, like, oh, that's it. That's how I feel. That's how I feel all the time, Karen. Karen, that's how I feel all the time. Wow. And it just was like this combination of this incredible relief and in like, um, yeah. and I, re- I think it speaks to what you're saying that, is it a hard thing and will there be grief and long lasting impact? But I always remember that look in his face. Like, yep. Mm-hmm. Like this is what's going on. Yes. Yep. And this combination of understanding relief, surprise, almost happy. Like just yeah. like somebody, there was an element of, of, of feeling happy. Like oh, somebody is saying like what I feel all the time. Yeah. 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 How powerful. Mm-hmm. And I always remember, you know, when thinking about how the talking with kids about hard truths mm-hmm. Yep. You know, that we would rather yep. avoid or right. minimize or like we said earlier, let, let's sanitize this title. Of this. Let's not make it sound quite that bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. Well, and again, then going back to, the causation of fetal alcohol and adding that layer of complication on top of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is even as an outsider looking in, um, as I've been around kids with this diagnosis and I suddenly think this all could have been avoided. Yeah. That this, you were completely powerless and you are now dealt this card for the rest of your life I could start crying right now if I, if, if I let myself think about it too hard. Right. Well, and also having worked with biological moms who have kids with what they now know as FASD. And then, of course, you know, in my personal parenting, having my daughter's biological mom um, and kind of navigating those dynamics. What I believe without a doubt is there's never a mother out there who meant to hurt their child. No, I mean, right. I just it's can't never even... black and white. It's always complications. There's always yeah. grief and loss involved on their side of, I mean, it's really, I it, can't it imagine really the amount of shame and guilt and, you know, all of that for, right. for mothers. Right. Yep. 
Yeah. Gets complicated quickly. <laughs> yeah. So, but you do have a message of hope and there are like lots of ways to support kids, lots of ways to support families, you know, maybe share some of, you know, let, let, let's end on a hopeful message, you know, that this yeah. is a hard thing. This is a lifelong thing, but mm-hmm. this isn't, you know, that, that things that, that you're doomed or something. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So my first message of hope would be that this is a permanent physical disability, but just in the way that other permanent physical disabilities are accommodated so that people can have, with those disabilities, can have meaningful, full lives, the same is true here, right? And so that may not mean that our child takes the same path that we took as a neurotypical person in this world, but it absolutely means that they can live in a community where their talents are valued, where they feel like they belong um, and that sort of thing with those accommodations in place. The other piece that I think I've seen over and over and over again is that with, when a parent is missing information, they didn't know what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And things are really, really hard, not because you're a bad parent, but because you're missing information. And so when you have more information about brain function and the way your child's brain works, then you start to understand why there's this chronic irritability, chronic frustration, chronic anger, chronic withdrawal. I mean, we could go on and on and on. The same would be true for any of us. If we were constantly misunderstood, we would be all those things, right? So Mm -hmm. it's absolutely true for our kids. Once you start to understand the root of that, and start to figure out, well, how do I accommodate those things? You start to see your child settle in ways that you really never thought were possible. And it doesn't mean that it's smooth sailing and all rainbows and unicorns (laughs) from here and forever. Mm -hmm. But what I have parents say to me over and over again is they'll have a difficult week with their child after practicing this model for, you know, a period of time, they'll have a difficult week and they'll say, oh my gosh, I have not seen that in months, mm-hmm. right? Or, wow, it took me by surprise because I used to see it every day and I just haven't seen them in that kind of state in so long. And yes. that's what you start to see. It's it less intense, the frequencies less, but, but the, the, the way that you get there is staying dedicated to parenting on this path, this neurobehavioral path and getting sucked into the behavioral lens um, is happens to all of us. It still happens to me. I still make this a daily practice and recommitment, right? Yes. So it is, it is lifelong, but it gets easier. That's the thing too, is the, the learning curve can be steep in the beginning, but it gets easier. It gets more automatic. And that connection with your child, it just, it looks different than, than it's ever looked before. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I mean, you know, obviously this is a spectrum and there's, you know, different things that help different people, but I'm also, you know, you've talked a lot about accommodations and mm-hmm. I think it can be helpful uh, for people to hear like some, what are some of the common things that really make a difference? And I know you do mention, of course, you don't have time to go into each of them, but there are pretty specific domains that that are kind of impacted. Could you share a little yeah. about those domains and like, wow, sure. you know, so, some of the most popular ways that we accommodate a kid that yes. helps so many kids is this, and then knowing people would have to read more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I've mentioned dismaturity already, that gap in developmental age and chronological age. And really the accommodation there is to recognize that it's present and adjust our expectations for that of a younger child, right? So it's good to teach our children responsibility like say with chores, 
a chores for an 18 year old versus a chore for a nine, nine year old is going to look really different. So adjusting that expectation processing pace is a huge one for these kids. So use less words, <laughs> which is hard for us. We want to jump into the conversation, especially when we're agitated. <laughs> you know? yes. Use less words and understand that they are a one second child in a 10 second world. And so things are moving super, super, super fast. They need, they need all of that time to process what you've said. So you call their name, they quote unquote ignore you. Maybe they need an actual 10 more seconds to hear process mom's calling my name, right? So a 10 second child in a one second world. Learning and memory is huge. And we could talk for a whole podcast about that. Um, the piece, the accommodation there that is universal with these kids is accepting the need to reteach. So they have on and off days. They know it one day, the next day, they do not know it to save their life. That's not manipulation. That's not just choosing not to do it. They have on and off days. If we can understand that, then we know accommodations first, right? Um, and the need, accepting that need to reteach. We think we've taught it a million times. We probably need to do it another few thousand times <laughs> for them to get it. And then executive functioning is a huge other kind of category when we talk about brain function. And I think pieces there, it's things like understanding what that frustration tolerance looks like, that ability to regulate emotions, um, the ability to transition, the ability to get out of behavioral loops or out of thought loops that they get stuck in, right? That they're literally stuck in a cognitive state and they need help getting unstuck. Um, and then the last one I would say is, you know, this falls under abstract thinking, but understanding that our children are some of the most sensitive children out there. They do not have the skills, sometimes some of them do, but many don't, to put themselves in someone else's shoes, to understand that someone has a different perspective. And so when we have a child who's, say, 11 or 12, and we say, they're not capable of empathy, like it's just not in them. We always need to back up and say, well, what cognitive skills are involved in being empathetic, right? And so that's the process, taking that step back. What could be going on here from a brain-based perspective? If I can allow myself to believe that for a second, what other possibilities might emerge, right? We all of a sudden have an expanding list of possibilities and ways that we can support them rather than diminished one. I think that's a very good example because that's one of the first ones that people jump to and say there's no conscience. And, and so that mm -hmm. means, you know, um, this, this child is, is on, you know, on their way to, to becoming, you know, mm -hmm. a sociopath or antisocial or something. And that brings in that whole paradigm of, you know, yep that it's manipulation and control and all of that, which then leads to doing the opposite of what would be helpful. Yep. Yeah. Even with my 11 year old, who's a very sweet, sweet girl, very empathetic, cares about her friends and family deeply. We still have to make that feeling of the other concrete for her and walk her through that. And once we're able to do that, you can see on her face, like it dawns on her, like, Oh my gosh, I made them feel that way. Like that's what they were feeling. She couldn't get there on her own. So what and would it, what would making that concrete look or sound like? Well, so I can give you an example. Actually, from recently, she was um, 
she was out on the playground at school, had a little run-in with friends, very typical run-in, nothing big. The teacher handled it, thought it was resolved. They were walking through the cafeteria on their way back to the classroom. They were able to get a drink of water. She took her water and impulsively threw it on the kid that she'd had this little run-in with. She was not over it. <laughs> <laughs> and so the teacher who we're in daily contact with let us know that this happened. They took care of it. She wasn't calling to say she's in trouble. She just said, hey, heads up, this happened. She knows that my daughter needs that reteaching. And so we said, great, thanks. We'll talk to her about it when she gets home. So when I said to her, we were talking about her day, and I said, how do you think your friend felt when you threw water on him? And she just looked at me in all seriousness. She said, wet? Very concrete. Like, I threw water on him, therefore he's wet. Mm -hmm. And so I said, yes, I think he probably did feel wet. <laughs> but how do you think he felt inside? Like, what did his face look like? How would you feel? if one of your friends did something to you that you didn't like, you know, but really helping her kind of put herself in his shoes. So really you can do this visually also works really well. But I think if you just take the time to paint that big picture, all of the context that we assume is obvious, not obvious for these kids and help them get there that way. That's what helps them grow their skills slowly over time. Yeah. Yeah. Slowing a lot of that down and taking the time. Mm -hmm. you know. Yep. Um, yep. I really thought of so many kids when you said the processing speed, mm -hmm. you know, cause you can just see it. You can kind of see like, well, it is true that they're not doing what you said, but you can see like the wheels are turning. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's different than defiance. Um, so, well, this has been so helpful, Eileen. Oh, glad. I'm so glad that you were willing to meet with us. And I would like um, to have you share any books, articles, ways to find you. I know you, you mentioned your parent coaching that you do. So how yeah. if, if a therapist or a parent or somebody wants to reach out to mm -hmm. you for your expertise. Oh, thank you. And I've enjoyed so much this conversation. So paths <laughs> cross again. Um, so everything can be found at my website. It's just EileenDevine.com. So very simple. And yes, I have a small um, coaching practice where I work with parents actually all over the world, which is really cool. Um, on helping them understand this model. I also have a membership community called the Resilience Room, and it's for parents who want to grow in their understanding of this model and have that consistent support and those touch points. Um, month after month, there's content and Q&As and all, coffee chats, all kinds of good stuff that comes nice. in that, that membership community. It's a really lovely place. Um, and then I, of course, do trainings and stuff like that, too. But it's all on my website. So. All right. So that's where mm -hmm. they can find all of that. Yep. Well, thank, thank you so, so much for being here today. And, and uh, I do hope our paths do cross again. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.